Hi, I'm Lisa Lloyd, and I'd like to welcome you to the second series in my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. In series one, we explored what we mean by employee experience, and so now we are ready to unpick the how to achieving that. As a psychologist, psychotherapist, and business owner of It's Time for Change, I meet so many talented individuals who are aligned with my mantra, get people right, get business right. I'm going to be talking to some of these super interesting people who have stories, insights, and strategies to share about what it takes to be a great company, with inspiring leadership, an awesome culture, and a wow workforce. So let's dive in. So today I'm joined by Sheila Lord, Director of BMR Health and Wellbeing. Sheila and I met a couple of years ago, I think it was through the Thames Valley Chamber of Commerce Mental Wellbeing Steering Group, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, which we're both part of, uh, and we're both really driven by the sh same shared purpose, which is essentially to enable employees to thrive so that their businesses can thrive. Um, and actually, it's really great seeing your banner behind you, Sheila, which is saying about working together to improve the well-being of your workforce and your bottom line. And you and I are strong advocates that actually look after your people and it and you know your bottom line sorts itself out. So it's great to have you on my podcast, Sheila. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. So you're equally passionate about that preventative approach to mental health. And I know that like me, you've taken a really holistic view to look at how to achieve that. And I'm really looking forward to exploring how to unpick that um, from a company's perspective in terms of how to have a slightly different take on looking at the whole employee experience agenda, um, the how to plan for good psychological health, knowing that our mental wellbeing um, is the foundation for, for employee experience. But before we dive into that, let's hear a little bit more about your role and what BMR does. Um, so in terms of my role, I started BMR now three years, just coming up for three years ago. And my previous um, work, my previous career had nothing at all to do with workplace well-being. Um, I was an um, operations director for a supply chain solutions company uh, and I'd worked in electronics and manufacturing all of my life. So I'd done roles around quality, which will have relevance as we go further into the, the conversation. Uh, but I'd done roles around quality, continuous improvement, um, supply chain, etc. Um, and what I'd found as I was in my workplace was that there wasn't enough support when I needed to support mm. other individuals in my organisation. And we had, um, you know, different people uh, experiencing different situations from kind of mild, if you will, kind of occasional ups and downs with mental health to to some kind of more longer term more severe conditions and and you know the advice from hr or you know was like don't get involved don't don't touch it don't say the wrong things just give them a wide berth and it was it wasn't the right thing to be doing um and my life my circumstances changed i had a child at the age of 40 commuting and all of that you know menopause postnatal whatever all you know all those big bags of hormones circulating around and my values, my, my life goals all changed. And I just thought this isn't for me anymore. Um, and I know what I don't want to do, mm. but I don't know what I do want to do. Um, but that was a real challenge for me. And I set up a fitness retreat at first 
uh, called Body and Mind Reboot, hence where the BMR comes from. Ah. Um, and that was Body and Mind Reboot. And that was about providing a safe space for people to get off the hamster wheel of life, to reset body, mind, give it all a bit of a reboot. And we did a lot of physical stuff, uh, physical activity, lots of nutritional stuff, and then a lot of work around mindset, personal responsibility. And what I saw really quickly with the retreats is that there were lots of different versions of me arriving on my doorstep mm. at the retreats, stressed out as a result of work and work factors and balancing and juggling far too many plates. And it was at that point I said to my business partner, uh, you know, we had a conversation and we said, we, we need to do more. One, we need to understand how to have conversations with people around mental health and, and, and be more aware of that and how we can support and refer, refer people on because we cannot become psychotherapists mm. overnight. Um, and two, yes, we need that for ourselves within the remit of what we're doing within the fitness retreat, but wouldn't it actually make more sense to go at that time, you know, to the to the root of the problem, which is workplaces mm. um, and try to educate workplaces to do exactly that. And interestingly, like many organizations, OK, mm. I did the same as what a lot of organizations that decide that they're going to tackle well-being did. I started to look at the very reactive stuff mm. about looking at, you know, let's have a look at mental health first aid training. So that was the first product that we brought into our BMR health and well-being business. And when we created BMR, you know, the name changed from body and mind reboot to building mental resilience. Mm. And then quickly realized that actually we don't need to be building mental resilience. Why do we need to build resilience to jobs that are just stretching us and stretching us and stretching us? We shouldn't have to be resilient to bad work or work that's bad for us. Mm. What we need to do is we need to go beyond mental resilience. You see where I'm going there with the other BMR. <laughs> we need to go beyond mental resilience and do more. And actually, we need to get to the root cause of what's going on. And instead of just teaching people how to have conversations and to understand mental health, we need to really look at what is causing people to become ill as a result of work and work on preventing them from becoming ill. Mm. So that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> oh, really interesting because I love, I love the journey that that name has been on BMR <laughs> and how, how many different things that can stand for. Um, and, I, and I love your take on resilience because that's something that's very close to my heart when people ask me to talk about resilience and they expect me to talk about it in a from a standpoint of we need to make people around here more resilient so they can just cope better it's like no, no no we're humans we have a limit and actually why should we just be struggling on and coping rather than thriving because you're throwing less at us because you're thinking about your employees and and what's best for them so I completely get that that take on that yeah no absolutely absolutely and and it, it's it happens all of the time, doesn't it? It's let's fix the people. Let's fix the people. The people are the problem. And it's like, do you do you go around fixing your customers if a customer has a complaint? Mm. You know, if a client comes to you and says, actually, the service you're giving me as your customer isn't great, you go, oh, well, sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, it's your problem. Yeah. You're going to have to learn to be a little bit more resilient and a little bit more giving in terms of your expectations. 
we just wouldn't do it because we know that the customer is king. You know, there's that phrase in the customer's always right, customer is king. And yeah, without customers, we don't have a business. But equally, without staff, we don't have a business. You know, you only have to look at the news, you know, and see how much money businesses are losing. Cancelled flights. I never knew there was so much money in berries, millions of berries just going to waste because there's nobody available to do the fruit picking, mm. you know, and is this as a result of poor work? Um, you know, not, you know, we know there's a labor shortage in the market, but if we create better work, mm. we're going to retain people. We're going to be able to recruit people um, and, and keep them. And that's what underlies everything you and I talk about in the sense of, is, is not rocket science is basically be about being a good human being and if you look at the people around you and look at making their experience as po positive as possible whatever that looks like depending on your context and, and who you're working with then actually they're, they're going to be the best place to and, and they're going to want to stay with you and they're going, going to want to do their best and you know it's 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 the obvious stuff but I guess the how to do that is the bit that people are struggling with and I think more and more companies are coming on board and knowing that they have to perhaps change their approach they need to look at how to um start look at looking at themselves as an organization rather than expecting individuals to to sort themselves out so I'm, I'm interested to unpick that a little bit because we know that for companies when they're looking at improving positive well-being there are a number of different approaches to tackling that and as you've said there some people zoom in on a product or at an individual level and something that's really important is to is to also look at the leadership level look at the whole organization level and I'm curious to know um, a bit more about how you engage with companies around that because I know we've both had conversations in the past about the need to look uh, at getting views of all employees to feed into whatever changes are about to happen and to measure that and to review it and to go through this whole sort of very systemic approach which is organization wide rather than zooming right in tell me a bit more about how you support companies with that sort of wider approach yeah so so everything we do we kind of we try we, we look at the whole picture as to mm. what's going on there and you know one of the things you just said there lisa was like you know we don't know we think we don't know how to do this mm. in terms of improving well-being at work, but we're all we have all the tools in the business that we need to be able to do it. You know, there are kind of I always think of it as four wheels on a wagon. Mm. And we have safety, and everybody in the organisation knows how to do safety because we have a safety culture and we have risk assessments and we have process. And if you see uh, a trip hazard in a walkway. You wouldn't go, I'm the CEO, I'm not bending down to pick that up, it's beneath me. You wouldn't do that. You would move that trip hazard out of the way. Likewise, if you're, um, you see something wrong that's wrong with quality, you know, another wheel of, of, of a key wheel on the business, you know, we all have this uh, responsibility. We all own quality and we all own customer service. But then as soon as you say who owns well-being and it becomes a people thing that we're terrified of, um, which is really weird because we're all people. Um, nobody wants to own it. Yet, you know, you would take the same approach with well-being as you do for safety, mm. as you do for quality uh, and continuous improvement. And as you do for customer satisfaction, you've got all the tools there. 
You've got all the mechanisms in place. You're just not applying them to your own people internally. So from a safety perspective, you know, we'll carry out a risk assessment. We'll look at work. We'll look at physical work and we'll look at how that's designed. Mm. And we would see a guardrail missing off a machine that can potentially chop somebody's fingers off. We'd put a guardrail on. We would eliminate that risk of injury. Yet with psychological well-being, people look like a rabbit trapped in the headlights when you tell them, let's do that. And how, how? Mm. Well, you ask them, mm. what in the design of work, what of the different work factors are causing you to become ill as a result of work? Is it work overload? Mm. Is it um, co-worker support? Is it any relationships that you've got? Is it bullying? Is it harassment? Is it the tools and the resources, is it the social environment? And we ask these questions routinely as part of this risk assessment process. So this is us kind of looking at, and I, I'd keep it really simple. I have a three, three letter acronym called ACT. That's it. Ask what's impacting you, mm. how often and how severely. Um, consult with your employees. When you've asked them something, talk to them about it consult with them about it yeah you're going back to what you say how do we fix it ask your employees they're the ones that are struggling with it they will know the solution because they will go if only we did it this way that problem would go away so they're your best resource in terms of mm. getting this right so when you ask them the question you consult with them on what the solution is and then together you collectively take action mm. and it's that simple and, and it is simple isn't it and it's that yeah. I think sometimes people are expecting what they have to embark on to be this really complicated costly procedure and we haven't got time to do this or you know whose job is it and, and actually when you break it down to starting by asking the questions and consulting with the people you have the expertise within your company you have the the insights you have the ideas if you if you ask the right questions and set the right tone for wanting to hear those uh, views then actually you've got so much within your own organization and I think we have to get beyond some of the the kind of the language we use around psychological health and you know we, what we want our culture to look like because some people are like oh, I have no idea what that actually means like what what are we talking about actually when we start talking about what's getting in the way of me being able to do my job really well or what's getting in the way of me being able to feel really valued at work or being able to speak up or you know to be heard very concrete questions people are like oh yeah well I can tell you about that I can tell you all sorts of stuff about that absolutely absolutely and it, it is it's 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 so simple to do if we just ask the questions yeah. that's that literally is all we need to do and yeah there's behavior change and there's building trust and there's uh, creating that again what we call psychological safety you know and that and that again and I think you're right it's debunking all this language we basically want to create a job we want the job that you do to be good for you we want you to walk in happy we want you to skip out singing yeah maybe not singing especially not me but you know we want you to we want you to come into work and leave feeling better if not as good yeah. as, as when you walked in mm. and so it's about having a good job the right tools good work design um and then a, an environment where you can feel that you can speak up and say your piece 
give your ideas, give your suggestions without fear of being put down. Mm. Exactly. And, and, and so the, the ISO 45003 is the first global standard that gives employers practical guidance on how to manage their psychosocial risks to staff in the workplace. And it focuses on the mental health and the well-being aspects of health and safety. And I love it because it because it combines the mental well-being with mm. the health and safety. And I think that for, for some people is going to be ringing the alarm bells. Actually, maybe I need to be tuning into this because I'm really serious about health and safety stuff. Um, and, and it helps companies build a positive working environment that can help improve their organizational resilience. So it's about how as an organization, they're looking at that piece around resilience rather than individual responsibility. So again, I like that. Um, it looks at enhancing employee experience, their motivation, their performance, because it's asking them the questions and it's enabling them to speak up. Um, and I think it's become really essential in, a, in the world where boundaries are quite blurred between work and non-work activities. So I think having a standard in there, which is saying about we're looking after you, we're making sure that you are well and you're safe is, is hugely important. Mm. But this ISO framework is something you support the use of. Tell us a little bit more about how you're seeing companies using it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because at the moment, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of companies out there still. There's still a massive educational piece to be done on the standard what it is and how it benefits organizations um and you talk there about you know these really we've got lots of companies out there are very safety conscious yet these same safety conscious organizations either haven't heard of 45,003 yeah um or they're still sitting on the fence um it's only been out literally a year um so you know you've got fantastic organizations like Encore that got the certification really really quickly but that was because they were already doing the good work they already had that preventative approach to workplace mental health mm -hmm. um and I think with anything with with ISO standards you've got generally two camps you've got the people that um think yep that's a framework and that's great and the others who think it's a bureaucratic nightmare and it's both it's mm -hmm. both depending on how it's implemented um, and that framework you know this ISO framework is really it's not meant to be a bureaucratic process this is guidance yeah guidance not the law it's guidance on how to do workplace well-being mm. well how to approach it in a preventative way. And it's giving you all the pieces of the jigsaw that you need to use. And there'll be some parts that are more relevant in your organization and some that are less relevant in your organization. You don't make a square peg fit into a round hole. You make it work and you adapt it and you suit it to your, to your business. And I think also when you look at what it covers, actually it makes complete sense for lots of companies to be engaging with it now because people are asking questions about how do I manage you know the work hours or how do I look after staff with this problem or how 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 and they keep asking the how and if you engage with something which kind of gives you the feedback then you're part way there it goes back to our conversation about asking the questions and I know so the, the guidance covers aspects such as how to identify the conditions 
circumstances and workplace demands that have the potential to impair the psychological health and well-being of workers so mm. companies need to know that information Absolutely. and so wh- whether you whether you want to engage with this standard or not you need that information so this is a framework that will help you gather that how to identify the primary risk factors and assess them to determine what changes are required to improve the working environment and it includes the out of hours work and remote working both of which are really prevalent today and come with their own psychological risks so they're kind of this is stuff that companies are really grappling with right now and sometimes they're saying I'm not really sure how to go about this what's the right way to go about this and Mm. it's almost using this standard as a as a framework as a kind of it's a process just to go through kind of almost take a checklist it's the the how-to oh have I considered that so you know you look at it oh have I considered the internal factors and the external factors that impact Mm. my well-being you know if you've got somebody that works in um I don't know, A&E on the reception desk. Have we considered the external factors that could stress those people out, like drunks coming in on a Saturday night or Larry and what have you? You know, we've and so it goes through all of these. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? To put an action plan together. Have you thought about putting this in? And, and actually, most, you know, there's 1.7 million ISO certificates that, have, uh, that are in current, like, issue worldwide on the latest I'm a bit of an ISO geek uh, on the latest ISO surveys right so there is 1.7 million certificates right now ISO 45003 is this child standard okay so it sits under a a bigger an an overarching 45001 standard and the reason for that is that when 45001 was developed it didn't it was only a lighter touch really on the psychological stuff and there was a need really to put a bit more meat around the bones. Mm. Now, if you look at the occupational health standard of 45,001, and you may have some listeners who recognize it in old money as 18,001, you know, in 2018, there were only 11,000, just short of 12,000 45,001 certificates issued in circulation. As of um, 2020, that's 195,000. Wow. So that's gone up over 200% on 45,001. Do you know what has in, what's made that difference? Because you said earlier about with the 45,003, people are still sitting on the fence. So mm. what has, what's pushed some of those people off the fence to making a decision to engage with, with the 45,001? I think some of it's been a transition over from 18,001 because that was the old version. So I would say that's had an influencing uh, factor. Mm. But I think that, you know, for me, and I'm just, this is just my opinion. I just think that these frameworks carry a lot of weight and they carry a lot of sense. These frameworks are put together by leading experts in that particular field. So leading up health experts, et cetera, you know, you know, that, you know, Peter Kelly, you know, he was involved in the development from the 45,003 standard and a load of other really um, significant, um, knowledgeable people in that industry. So I would always ask the question, why would you not use a framework that's been put together Mm. by global experts and that actually depending on the size and nature of your business uh, they're they're applicable to any size of organization and they've also looked at on a global footprint 
the different kind of laws, the different kind of cultures, so mm. that it becomes this uniform um, framework that can be, and this is the key with these things, is adapted to fit the societal, the cultural, the environmental norms mm. of your business. And, and I, that's so key, isn't it? Because mm. that's the bit that no one wants, something that's so standardised that actually is not quite relevant. You've got, you've, because that's almost going back to trying to fit that square peg into a round hole. Um, and I think when we are able to adapt and say, right, well, this is, this makes sense as a framework. These are really good questions to be asking. This is really good stuff to be exploring within our own, own organization. And we need to, we can adapt it to make sure it is really relevant. Then that's got to break down some of those fears about engaging with it. Because as you said earlier, I think, people can be standoffish as thinking this is going to be quite onerous and and it may not necessarily fit my particular business absolutely and if it's everybody's business because it's about it's about operationalizing well-being right so customer yeah. satisfaction we have net promoter scores yeah quality will have um in, you know indicators for, for quality and, and things like ISO standards or different certifications you know for safety we've got you know all of that stuff for that as well and and with all of those different components we have KPIs we have measures right and and I say this and it's probably not a popular um, thing for me to say but I just think that while there's been a lot of good done around workplace well-being I think there's also been a lot of damage done in boardrooms um, or in the perception of, of in, in C-suite leaders' perceptions of well-being as being a load of fluff. Mm. And I think we need to change the narrative and we need to operationalize this. And, you know, I thought the question like that, how much you spending on, say, well-being, right? So big, massive organization, you know, a big financial group or banking group, they could be spending hundreds of thousands, right? And you go, so, and what's that doing for you? What's your return on that investment? How are you measuring the ROI for that? Mm. 95% of the time, no one can tell me. Nobody can tell me. Where in any business do you spend hundreds of thousands of pounds mm. without any impact report, mm. without any KPIs, without any due diligence, mm. without any audits, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, it might be unpopular, but I'm completely in the same boat as you on that because, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just couldn't agree more. The, the, I was having a conversation with uh, John Holland last week in my episode of this podcast, and we were talking, he's, a, he's an awesome guy. He works with Maersk. They're doing incredible things around mental well-being, um, and he's a mental health first aider, but he's really pushing the boundaries of that role and looking much wider. So he's wanting to uh, engage with the kind of wider organization in terms of how he can make a real difference, which is kind of beyond what his um, mental health or traditional mental health first aid role might be. But he raised the very valid point that actually I think a lot of mental health first aiders will find themselves in, which is that it's an almost addition to his day job. So he has his day job and he's, you know, he's senior in his company he's he's doing this all all this inspiring awesome stuff but and he's then doing his mental health first aid role on top of that and then because of who he is 
and he has this insight. He's got these amazing ideas. When you talk to him, he's like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And this is all going to impact really positively on our uh, employees, of which there are many thousands. But he hasn't got the time to do it yet because that's not really his role. And it's it comes back to my point about um, that we were making uh, in the conversation last week. Actually, we, we need to look as organisations how much we want to invest in our people and make the resources available rather than it being this bolt on who's got the interest or who's got the motivation or who's you know who who can we tag that onto this being part of their role absolutely and, and again this is again where ISO brings it in and I, you know I'll bring it back to this it's operationalizing well-being mm. if you look at the clauses in ISO you know we've got to look at you know the support where are the resources, the people, the infrastructure, the facilities? You wouldn't expect somebody to take on um, customer satisfaction as a side gig. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, hang on a minute. And, and you know, even that, you know, the role of mental health first aiders, it's like, does, you know, if you've got, if you're listening to this and you've got mental health first aiders in your organisation, do you track how much time they spend having conversations um, because if you're not doing, mm. yeah, you need to. Mm. Yeah, you need to measure it. One, was there an investment in your mental health first aiders? Two, does anybody use it? And three, if somebody's using that mental health first aider eight, 10 hours a week and they're speaking to 12 or 13 different people and that's going unchecked, you mm. really are putting that mental health first aider at risk yeah. of, of um, vicarious trauma. So mm. actually from your legal duty of care perspective, if you're not risk assessing the organization, if you're not protecting the peer-to-peer, voluntary peer-to-peer support networks that you've put in place, Mm. you're exposing yourself as an organization because actually, technically, if there is a psychological injury from that, the HSE could come in and put an enforcement order on you. And the unfortunate thing with that, yeah, and that's that's where companies, might end up tripping up although their intentions are really good and this is always that thing about you've got some companies who say this stuff's not I'm not interested you know I just want to carry on in my very traditional way of doing things that people should be grateful for turning up and having a job Um, and there are those people out there and that's that's their their deal but for the people who are saying actually we we want to take it seriously and we're really proud of the fact we've got these mental health first aiders and and again, you know, the point about return on investment, how well are you supporting them and how well are you developing their skills and their confidence and so on. And that's something I have quite a lot of conversations uh, with companies around. But, yeah, it's, it, we, we definitely need to look at how we're supporting mental health first aiders in their role and protecting them and actually just protecting anyone, whether they're an HR director or whether you know, it doesn't matter who they are, whether it's a team manager and they've got lots of issues going on in their team and their manager feels out of their depth because they suddenly got people you know, work, working all hours and unable to find the boundaries or whatever it might be, workload concerns. Actually, where, where, how we identify those people who need support and how we put that support in place. And they might think we're doing great things because we've got all these people doing these amazing jobs in our company and we've got, you know, people looking out for each other but unless we're looking out for the people who are looking out for the people Hmm. very easily come unraveled absolutely and this is again at operationalizing the well-being Mm. you know mental health first aiders you've got job description have you got roles have you got an escalation process have you is the you know the the 
role that you've got is that carried out did you go for an interview process mm. did you go through a screening process as to why you wanted to become a mental health first aider mm. we mm. certainly don't ask if somebody wants to be the ceo a manager or the cleaner we don't just ask them to put their hands up and volunteer mm. but yet mental health first aiders we're doing this in we're giving it we're giving this such a light touch and it's not a light touch mm. area it needs real focus it real needs real c-suite you know executive sponsorship leadership whatever you want whatever your buzzword is in your industry it needs real commitment not just john the ceo coming out saying oh i had uh, i struggled once with an with an issue and i'm fully behind you and i support it mm-hmm. and then nothing mm-hmm. it needs to be done mm-hmm. with meaning mm-hmm. and done consistently and it needs to be woven into the everyday fabric of how that business operates and yeah. it's got to be operational if you don't operationalize it it's an initiative with a start and an end date yeah it, it's it, if, if unless it's systemic it will fall over or stop at some point you know and if you look and i think now is the time you know we're coming out of this pandemic we've got the framework we're, we're, we're kind of seeing the back end you know the back end of this pandemic hopefully yeah the country is in a bit of a pickle with other stuff right now and inflation and all the rest of it so you know this is a time where we've got all the tools we've got the need Mm. but yet there's still inaction and people are still preferring or organizations are still preferring and this is human nature uh, to to stick with what they've got to continue doing what they've done because a it makes them feel good Mm. but actually look at what you're doing and why not because we've always done it that way or well we've had this in place for two years and it's great it may have done Mm. but it's time to evolve this is where this continuous improvement piece comes in and we've got to be constantly shifting and adapting Mm. any approach that we've got to workplace well-being because our work environments Mm our social environments mm. our economic environments are shifting all the time we move at such an agile pace mm. that we need to be able to do that from a well-being perspective and at the moment people are trying more gimmicky stuff you know because yeah, it's an easier fix and I think exactly. you know you're you've hit the nail on the head in terms of people like to resort to what they already know because they have that sense of control over it it's familiar it's easier it's risky trying something new or asking questions and I don't know what the response is going to be or you know could I open a can of worms and actually if you don't open a can of worms you don't know what they are they're still there you're just not aware you haven't you haven't taken the lid off but I can guarantee the conversations that are going on beyond the water cooler they are definitely there but you're just not aware of them so it's that sense of having the confidence to say we do need to evolve and actually we need to have the confidence of how to lead that and I do lots of work with um, an amazing uh, change coach Amanda Page who does lots of stuff around uh, how to lead a change in an organization so realizing actually we do need to flex we do need to adapt we do need to be agile and how do we do that to keep everyone on board with us so doing you know getting your leadership behind something like this particular standard as a frame using as a framework a process for just gathering the information from your organization and putting into practice we're Mm -hmm. going to start reducing some of the psychological 
risks that are very, very prevalent today. And actually, I'd be really interested to know a bit more about what you're seeing as, as some of those risks, those psychological risks that organisations are, are experiencing right now. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the, the biggest one that tends to come back is um, obviously workload is always the biggest kind of um, yeah. impact on well-being uh, and relationships and support. Mm. as well um and again if we don't have that if we don't get that environment right in the workspace then we're, we're fighting a losing battle mm. we're absolutely fighting a losing battle and we've just got to you know really really give this the right time and commitment for it to be done and it doesn't have to be difficult you know, it sounds scary, mm. but, you know, I think, you know, we have a technology um, platform that helps organisations to do these things. We can use tech mm. to facilitate a lot of this for us, to gather the information, um, to gather information in a way that's anonymous, to be able to look at the current state, to look at, we did some stuff after we asked some questions and then we, you know, we've got a future state and be able to compare, mm. did what we do have any impact? And we've got to keep that, mm. we've got to keep shifting that dial, we've got to keep turning that wheel. Um, you know, and, and I think with this, you know, again, organizations, we need to look at, you know, what do we want to, what, what is, what does it look like to us to have a successful organization with our people? And then let's work it back to how we're going to actually achieve it. Mm. You know, and again, if you look at the standard, you know, clauses four to seven in the standard, they basically the, the planning bit, you know, what do we want to achieve and how are we going to get there very like at top level? Um, and then we kind of look at how we're going to do the doing. Mm. Um, but the, the mistake, I think that, or the, or the hole that organisations fall into with this stuff is that they want a silver bullet solution and they want immediate results and you ain't going to get them. Yeah? No, exactly. And I, and I think... Change management, you've got the behaviour change, yeah. you've got the, the putting it into process, you've got, you've got to, again, operationalising it into your business. And then there's going to be some really easy wins. There's going to be... But you need to have short-term, medium-term, long-term objectives. Yeah. And, you know, I was speaking to, to Hayley from MCOR and she was saying, you know, and I'd asked her about the certification process. She said, you know, we've just... We've got the 45,003 now, but this is just the start of our journey. And I loved that. Yeah. It was like, it's not, I've got it, tick, hang it on the wall and we're done and we can just forget about this. This is the start of their journey and they've got long, short, medium and long-term objectives like we do with anything else we want to do well. And it comes back to continuous learning, doesn't it? It's that sense. So you don't ever get to point of ticking the box and saying, I've done it. You're, you are always in a place where you should be able to carry on improving. Hmm. What I'm interested is, you know, looking at data and obviously this is, um, will bring up lots and lots of data, provide lots of data for people to make, be able to make really good decisions. Mm -hmm. And actually for more cynical people, when you look at sort of some of the key risks for people, you know, you mentioned about workload. So there is, um, you know, the, the Robert Walters 2020 survey, if you're thinking about burnout, um, found that 47% of managers thought their employees may be at risk of burnout. And that's a real issue when you think about the blurred boundaries now because of the way people work, um, concerned about the future of work, what does it look like for them? 
And you know, the World Health Organization also found a really interesting statistic that long working hours is killing over 700,000 workers per year you know, because of all the health implications, because they're just pushing themselves way too hard. Unmanageable workload, they don't have the skills to do their job, they don't have the knowledge to do their job. People are, um, people need support in terms of how to be most productive in their work hours so that they can achieve what they need to achieve in their work hours and then be able to switch off. And that is, a, again, a company responsibility. Yes, individuals have to take have individual responsibility about when to stop and having those boundaries. But as an organisation, we need to look at how much we're putting piling on to our individual employees and expecting them just to get the job done at all cost, because it's coming at a considerable cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then this is why we've got to get this in the boardroom agendas. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be done in a way that we can measure this and understand it. It's got to be this prevention mm-hmm. uh, approach. And I just think, you know, for me, it's like, you know, get it on the balance sheet because you can. You know, you can get this on the balance sheet. You know, we look at staff costs for businesses. They're top, you know, in some organisations, they can be as high as 70 mm-hmm percent right but then when you break down staff cost how much of that is sickness how much of that is recruitment how much of that is training that's just the stuff that you can pull off yeah that you know about yeah yeah that doesn't look at any of the presenteeism number then kind of goes into a much much bigger much bigger number but because it's not visible it's not recognized and this is where you know with this working together to improve the well-being of the workforce and the bottom line and I just think, okay, so you you might be spending hundred grand, ten grand, two hundred grand on well-being. Mm. You're spending that, and you're investing that much money because there's probably some underlying issues going on. You're trying to put sticking plasters mm. all over it, so you're spending two hundred grand. You've got all of this presenteeism, and the absence, and all the rest of it kind of going on here. So there's another chunk of money there, um, and yet you're pushing people to do all of this work to bring in more profit, whereas you've got profit that you're leaving on the table because you're not doing the right things. You've got money that you're leaving on the table that can pay those extra, um, you know, support people with extra pay rises or with bonuses or whatever. We're leaving money on the table. And it reminds me way back because I started life working in purchasing. And years ago, when we, when I worked in purchasing, it was seen as a very admin um, focused role back in the eighties. It didn't have the boardroom um, level of uh, strategic um, input that it has now. And when I worked in purchasing, we were order placers. Yeah, that was that was the view of us from the people in the finance team, and uh, we were just order placers that would order a widget here and a widget there. We. In my in my job when I worked up in Manchester, we were bringing in two million a year onto the bottom line. We had to sell a lot of stuff to clear that as profit on the bottom line, because we got purchasing on the strategic agenda, and we worked hard to bring that up to a level. Now procurement is such a heavy focus area in terms of strategy and profit and its relationship to the bottom line. And I really, really, really hope that people get on the same page. And it has to be because when you look at some of the risks around 
working hours, burnout, that being able to support each other, um, maybe your role is not very fulfilling, so you're stressed because of that. When you look at the solutions to those, you know what what companies can do to resolve some of those um, challenges. We've got a whole host of things. So whether it's about education around early warning signs that someone is stressed or experiencing difficulty, whether it's about manager confidence in terms of having conversations and being able to check in, whether it's about teams being able to get on with each other and understand the value that they each provide. But whatever the issue is, there are going to be lots and lots of factors that can be identified that cross every aspect of an organization so you've got to have a systemic approach to dealing with this whole agenda about employee psychological safety and well-being and their ability to do their job well because it is going to touch on every single part of your business so you can't attribute it to one particular individual one particular department you've got to have a join-up approach that's got to be at a leadership level Absolutely. And and the other point that, you know, that springs to mind when you're saying that, Lisa, is that also it's not generic. So the finance team might be under different pressures. Yeah. Uh, the biggest contributing factor might be the manager that they've got. Yeah. yeah. That's that's not very good with people, for example. Um, and then in in the sales, it might be deadlines or workload. And then in somewhere else, it's going to be something else. And what we need to be able to do, you know, there's a lot of boss bashing, isn't there? And there's a lot of the manager gets it in the neck because managers are useless and this, this, that and the other. But we need to be able to equip them with the tools so, so they can get data insights mm. into what's going on with their team. So to be able to push out, mm. and this is the stuff we do, you know, being able to push out these um, quick, simple to complete um risk assessments for around a psychological or mental health or you know work contributing factors in the workplace whatever you, what name you want to give it but to be able to push that out really quickly and then get that information back in an anonymized way no this person said that and that person said that to then be able to look at in order of severity from highest to lowest what is the one thing i need to focus on right now yes. in my team with my people What's the thing we need to get underneath and resolve? And that, you know, for me, risk registers or improvement plans or whatever you want to call them within an organization, there would be one per department and there'll be some really low hanging fruit on some of that. So that might be, you know, um, I don't know, John's an admin guy and he's, he's a data entry guy. Yeah, mm. but we um, he's got a rubbish laptop um it's got really poor memory in it and it turns that blue hamster wheel of death that just like just turns and turns and turns and he can't get any work done yeah sending him on a resilience training course isn't really going to make him more resilient to his rubbish laptop um he's gone to it and it have said mm, computer says no our it policy is that you can't have another one for three years and you have to have them within this price spec because of your job uh or your position uh, and then a simple fix there could be he's brought this up he's talked about it and instead of John being backlogged with days and days worth of work and having to get a temp in to help him out, we just buy him a better laptop. Mm. It's really simple <laughs> stuff. Really simple stuff. And, and it's crazy. And, I, and But we do all of this under well-being. And actually, this is about just everybody in the organisation working together to continually improve work so our jobs are easier to do 
mm. quicker to do, more efficient to do, is honestly the best piece of advice I was ever given as a manager, which was a real game changer for me, was that, Sheila, nobody comes to work to do a bad job mm. and get on your nerves. To, to, yeah. That's not exactly what it, the words were, but I, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. But nobody comes to work to do a bad job. Yeah. So, you know, if there's something going on with people in your team, ask yourself why. Yeah. And I think you're, I think it's really interesting because you were, again, you were saying then about well-being. And I think for me, I still find that word too limiting. For, and I know how you think about it is how I think about it, which is incredibly holistic. Like it literally mm-hmm. touches everything, such as your ability for someone to get a new laptop because it's going to mean they can start with their workload, which actually isn't a well-being issue, but mm-hmm. it will affect his well-being if he stays behind. So you and I look at it the same way, but I think so many companies still, if they if they even see the word or hear the word well-being, even as part of this conversation you and I are having together, they'll be like, well, that's their person, that that person over there in, in my company, that's their responsibility. Or we're not, I'm just so done with this well-being stuff. Like I'm just over well-being. I'm over mental health. I've heard people say those terms have been used. So they're almost overused. They come up in every conversation. They're bored of it. But actually, when you break it down, which is why I end up talking now a lot more about employee experience, because if our experience is one where we can go to work and we feel recognized and we can achieve what we're supposed to achieve in our job. So we feel good about ourselves. And we have that sense of status and we feel connected and we have that meaning and purpose and all our kind of a basic emotional needs. If they're met well enough, which comes from our experience at work then not only does the workplace obviously benefit, but as an individual, I have good mental health and well-being. So it's almost focusing on the ingredients that go into making an employee's experience really wholesome so that they experience good me- mental health and well-being, rather than, for, for me, rather than focusing on the mental health and well-being per se, because actually that's almost the product at the end. Mm. Actually, we started looking a bit more at the organisation as the core and got that right, then we wouldn't have to have so much, so many webinars and documents and add-ons to say, here's something else you can do to boost your employees' mental health and well-being. And, that, and that's it. It's like, you know, you look at some of this stuff, the coffee mornings, the yoga, the uptake's pretty low on most of it. Mm. Pretty low on most of it. Probably the ones that get the most engagement is where there's some sense of community or a bit of a social around it. Because that is the thing. It's the social connection that people want, not having doing some yoga there are obviously people who love doing yoga and I'm not just saying that but the sense of what people are trying to provide they might be missing the points and actually people are engaging with it as a byproduct yeah no absolutely absolutely Lisa totally totally agree what practical steps or actions do you think leaders should be engaging with now to kind of bring out the best of their teams and be able to engage with this agenda? What would be your key takeaways? I would say the first thing leaders need to do is to know the numbers, Mm. to absolutely know the numbers around staff costs. Um, That would be one definite um, around that, what, you know, what that's costing you at the minute. And then also know what you're spending and what tools that you've got. So I've had conversations recently with big organisations whereby after we've had a conversation and they've gone away, they've found a load of stuff that they're still paying for that nobody's using. 
because it was an initiative that was brought in at a point in time and it's rolled on. So, you know, understand what your current internal, you know, your current staff costs are, your absence, your attrition and, and, and all of those things, your recruitment costs, okay, yeah. attrition rates. So understand, know your numbers, understand that. Understand what is being used and what isn't, what's serving you, what's not serving you. And then also understand what is it that you're trying to achieve as a business? What are your goals as a business in terms of your staff? And if the answer is we want to create good work for everyone, yeah, then you're on to a winner because if you want to create good work for everyone, focus on, as you said, Lisa, the employee experience, focus on creating good work. Mm -hmm. Don't the other terminology just focus on creating good work because we all know that if we work in a place that we love we feel connected with everybody we get on with everybody we just love coming to work it that that organization flourishes everybody in it flourishes it's it's a no-brainer and it's dead simple to do because the only way you're gonna find out is to ask them And then talk to them. Yeah. Understand it. Take that action with them. But know, know, where you, know where you're at right now, because I think where a lot of organizations are right now, they're eight, anywhere between two, three, five, eight years into well-being as, as a thing. And I think it's been very fragmented up to now. Oh, there's some MHFA England. Oh, there's an EAP. Oh, there's a bit of this. Oh, there's a bit of that. Oh, they had an app. They've got an app. Oh, they've got a widget. And it's all bitty. Uh, I've had people that have introduced stuff, people that have gone. And now this needs to be brought together in this whole holistic view, operationalized into the business. And we need to start taking it seriously. And that's what I love. And the fact that we can do this now, getting back face to face. I love getting the people in the room and masses of pieces of flip chart paper, big pens and saying, right, what have we done? Like, what are we doing? And actually just giving people space to go, oh yeah, remember that thing we did? Or what about this? And, and not getting down to the fine detail about asking people yet about what works for them or what doesn't work for them and what will help. But actually just what do we have going on in our organization? As you said brilliantly then, the companies have just grabbed, they have just been launched into this period over the last few years so much change and so much uncertainty and so much oh my goodness we don't know how to do the stuff companies have grabbed anything they can get their hands on to try and fill a gap or meet a need and and help them resolve a challenge it's so fragmented for so many companies if they could literally just get down on one massive piece of paper everything they're doing and start to try and join the dots up a little bit and say well actually that was a bit gimmicky that didn't really work for us or this thing's got real value and it's got forgotten or got hidden or you know and it's just pulling together it goes back to right to the start of this conversation so many companies have what they need in their company already the people the insights the resources it's just about accessing those and it's about pulling those together and it's about not reinventing the wheel yeah why would you do that why would you do that you know it's like oh you know when we haven't got really time to fit it in well you have a team meeting do it then yeah another it's another agenda point on 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 the on the agenda um but look at what you've got Mm. you just make it fit where it already is and there might be the occasional thing that you might need to do differently but you've got an infrastructure you've Mm. got it in place for all of the other things that it crosses across 
So, you know, health and safety, HR, you've got people in those roles. Let's just make it more official. Let's give them the time to do that um, or go off and spend loads of money on loads of initiatives, employ people into positions uh, because it looks good on your org chart and get no return on that investment. We, we could have a whole conversation on agendas meeting agendas when because <laughs> i'm always banging on about that saying can you just cut half that stuff off that people just sit kind of glazed over really not interested whereas if you cut if you cut some of that stuff i'm sure that could be resolved some other way and actually had some space in a meeting where people could get creative people could be able to genuinely feedback and shape what their experience is like then people will come alive in meetings then people will be able to if you're inviting people's opinions and people and disagreement that sense of actually let's let's really you know thrash out what we mean by this and how to make this better like that's when people come alive in meetings so surely that's what meetings are all about anyway we we can't got time to have that's another podcast conversation (laughs) so finally my last guest john holland has provided this question for me to ask you if you could go back 10 years what would you have done differently that would have ultimately changed where you are and what you're doing today? Oh, wow. That's a deep question. It's a very deep question, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's top marks for being the deepest. Do you know what I would have done 10 years ago? I would have quit my job straight after having my child. And I'd be 10 years further down in this journey. And I would, um, I would be, yeah, I would be, pushing I'd have been pushing this need for change um much earlier on um and I think that would have also made my experience into motherhood that first six years of motherhood more enjoyable um because I was trying to manage that with guilt Mm. mutes um and also you know things had changed at work and you know, at the, that first six years took a large chunk of my self-esteem that I've spent the last four years rebuilding. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I would have changed. I would never have gone back to work post-child. Yeah. On my own. But equally, saying that, had I not gone back to work, I wouldn't have made the decision. I'd have gone and done different jobs somewhere else in the same field. Yeah. So all of it is learning experience. So in actual answer to the question, I wouldn't change a thing. Brilliant. You said definitely, I wonder which way you're going to go because there's always two ways you can go or that. Like I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be where I am today with a successful business and, and loving what you do yeah. or you'd go back and change what was stressful at the time. But I think it's a really good lesson to take is that regardless of what situation someone's in, it is going to shape as long as you learn from it, it shapes what comes next. So mm. we have to keep that in mind when we're going through a challenging period. Sheila, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm going to put your contact details in the show notes. Is there any particular thing you want to plug at the moment or anything you want, any particular way you want people to contact you or reach out about? Yeah, no, people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll provide my email address. Um, what I do want to plug is that this doesn't have to be difficult. We've got a fantastic platform. Um, that helps organizations implement ISO 45003. We've got a step-by-step guide in there. Um, all the tool, all the tools that you will need 
for your holistic approach to operationalizing, and I don't want to use the word well-being, but, <laughs> but operationalizing well-being, um, and it's really simple and easy to do. So I'm more than happy to kind of speak to any of the listeners um, and just show them what that can look like. We will be producing a couple of webinars around it um, moving forward. Um, that's fantastic. And I have to say, I've really enjoyed this conversation because um, I'm not such a um, ISA fan as you in terms of just knowing them all and being able to kind of, you you can just spout all the, all the language. Um, so I've really enjoyed unpicking this a little bit more with you because I know this is something that you're very passionate about. And so, and you and I've had kind of snippets of conversations over the last few years. So to actually have a proper conversation. <laughs> So thank you so very much for joining me today. Um, and yeah, stay in touch and let me know how, how when, when people start to tip off the fence, fall off the fence and, and start engaging with it more. That'd be great. I will, I will definitely. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on Beyond the Water Cooler. If you love it, I would really appreciate a five-star review as this helps more people to find the podcast. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you get notifications every time we publish a new episode. If something in this episode has got you chomping at the bit, or if you'd like to discuss the topics covered in this podcast further, please do get in touch and we can continue the conversation. You can find me at lisa at itstimeforchange.co.uk. My details are in the show notes. If you'd like to be kept in the loop on what I'm getting up to, I publish a monthly roundup. To sign up, head over to itstimeforchange.co.uk forward slash join the club. I'm always looking for new, interesting people to chat with on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. So if you have a story to tell or know of anyone who would be an inspiration to talk to, please do get in touch. And lastly, I'd love to know what you would like to hear about on the podcast. So drop me a line for all suggestions. And that way I can make sure that what I'm talking about is most helpful. See you next time.